Burning Zozo Written by Kristen Knight Narrated by Nancy Peterson The pre-dawn patrons in the Santa Fe jail all turned and stared at the woman in four-inch heels, a fur coat, purple negligee, and enormous Chanel sunglasses who strode in like Marie Antoinette on her way to a garden party. Peeling off the glasses, she greeted the bushy-haired officer behind the desk. He shrank inside his uniform at her gaze. This was normal. Valeria Belikov frightened people. Not because of her beauty or the direct way she stated what she wanted. It was the way her clear, otherworldly eyes caught the light and lasered it back at them like a high-powered prism. Anyone who fell under the Valeria gaze was trapped. Like some divine force, she terrified them with her light. I am here to retrieve my boy, Christoph, she told the officer. Valeria didn't notice Andy sitting alone in the chairs behind her, waiting to talk to Chris. After a few minutes of negotiation that ended with the presentation of a black-on-black -black credit card, Valeria Belikov embraced her freed son and began interrogating him in Russian. He simply answered, Da, da, and nodded his head exactly twelve times. Andy counted. As Chris and his mother passed, Andy reached for him. Chris, she said. Chris, wait, I'm sorry, I had to... Chris shot a look at Andy that dammed up the words in her throat. His eyes had never looked so fierce. Raging was a more accurate descriptor. As a matter of fact, since they'd first met as children, Andy didn't remember ever seeing him really angry. Irritated, maybe. Frustrated, bugged even, but never this. Valeria led her son through the heavy doors of the jail as Andy slumped into her chair and put her face in her hands. 1.5. Weapon. The Mercedes pulled into a Conoco gas station on the border town of Breton, New Mexico. Stay in the car. The sun-glassed man said. I need to use the can, Rand said, and I could use a stretch. All right, just don't wander off. On the dirt next to the gas station sat a Hopi child in a Mickey Mouse tee. Next to him stretched a blue wool blanket where he'd laid out dozens of hunting knives, all sheathed in hand-tooled leather. Rand stood at the nearby red box, pretending to survey the movies, while he watched his new employer finish filling the Mercedes with gas. When the sunglassed man passed by on his way to pay, he mumbled to Rand, Don't even think about it. Once the coast was clear, Rand moved over to the blue blanket and crouched down to talk to the boy. He couldn't have been older than eight. You do these? Nope, my mom, said the boy. Nice work. He picked a knife up, slid the blade out, then back into the sheath. He gently smiled at the boy. Which is your favorite? The boy looked at Rand's eyes for a moment, then reached out 
his hand stopped at a sheath wearing a skeleton and a strange mask. And who was that guy? Masawu, the boy said, as he surveyed the number tattooed on Ren's thick arm. He's the god of the fourth world. Fourth world? Yeah, god of death, fire, afterlife. The fourth world. Ren's brows lifted. He's badass, the boy said matter-of-factly. Ren suppressed the smile growing on his face. I get it. He stretched up to watch his captor pressing a credit card into a chip reader inside the station. Hey, you got a cell phone on you? The boy squinted up at him and said nothing. Okay, how much for a knife? Forty, the kid said. Rand nodded, then went to the bathroom that was situated with its store on the outer wall of the station and waited. Being in the middle of nowhere, he didn't have to wait long. Moments later, a man wearing wraparound sunglasses, a Ragnar tee, and flip-flops rushed in. Hey man, can you do me a favor? Rand said in his most nonchalant voice. The guy looked him up and down. I doubt it. Rand's mouth dried out. I want to get one of those hunting knives out there for my kid, but my wife's in the car, and if she sees me buy it, I'll never hear the end of it. Would you? Please? I can't show up empty-handed for my boy's birthday. I don't... I'll give you 60 bucks. Rand pulled out a $100 bill. The knives are 40 You can keep the change. Just bring him back to me in here so she doesn't see me make the deal. The ragnar man took the money and held it up to the light, nodded, and pushed through the door. In under 30 seconds, the man was back, handing over the knife nestled in the badass Masawa sheath. Thanks, Rand said, then tucked it in the back of his pants and covered it with his shirt. 1.6. Breach. The daily parade of Teva-clad Santa Feans and their shelter dogs strode past Hansen and Schmidt, attorneys at law, on their way to Whole Foods for coffee and quinoa. Andy stood on the sidewalk out front, gripping a yellow index card covered with arguments she'd prepared for the conversation ahead. She breathed deeply. Then she practiced a few points aloud while the dog walkers stared. The Hansen and Schmidt receptionist glared at her over vote yes on immigrant ID, and so-so-bra-burning posters in the window. When the woman and her blonde extensions finally moved to the door, Andy pried her feet from the sidewalk. What are you doing out here, Andy? Just thinking. Well, you can think inside, you know. The blonde held the door wide. We do it every day. As Andy squeezed past the receptionist, the woman mumbled, Weird kid, under her breath. Inside, Andy beelined to the sanctuary of Gretchen Neve's office. Petite, pretty, 42, and a corporate lawyer, she was the smartest human being Andy had met to date. Through her glass office door, Gretchen's raven hair hung dark and sleek against the wall of crisp white diplomas. Okay, be concise, make your case. 
Andy muttered to herself, then tapped on the glass. Gretchen was reading and waved Andy in without looking up. The scent of jasmine and orange blossom perfume filled the room, and a live white orchid arched off the edge of her smoky glass desk. While Gretchen read a file, Andy perched on a chair and waited. She pulled the book she'd borrowed, Working with Contracts, What Law School Doesn't Teach You, 2008, from her backpack and slid it on the desk. Finally, Gretchen clicked the cap on her pen, looked up and said, Yes, Andy. Andy cleared her throat. Yes, Ms. Neves. I need some advice about how to help my friend with a problem. What type? Legal, financial, teenage? Legal. Good answer. She unconsciously flipped her gold pen over and under each finger one way, then the other. Players and brief? The players are my friend Susie and her dad. His name's Joe. Gretchen nodded. Brief? Andy liked the way Miss Neves always spoke in bullet points. He was fired from his job unfairly, she paused. But he has a big family and they really need the money. Has he talked to an employment lawyer? That's part of the problem. Joe's not a U.S. citizen and he... He... Andy stumbled over the truth she rarely said aloud. Gretchen leaned back in her white leather chair. Andy doesn't have a green card. Andy pushed her lips sideways and nodded. Hmm. Gretchen opened her pen and began jotting notes. Current residence? Here, New Mexico. Place of citizenship. Andy hesitated. Mexico? Gretchen said. Andy wrung the yellow card in her lap and said, Yes. And what happened? Joe works at a honey and pistachio farm in Almagordo, owned by a guy named Reynolds. Andy changed the names to protect the not-so-innocent. About the time that weird fungus showed up, a man claiming he was from State Agro came to take samples. On the way out, he saw Joe and mentioned to Reynolds that he knew his face. Okay, she said. The man told Reynolds he knew Joe was a U-Doc. A what? Oh, it's my family's nickname for an undocumented worker. Anyway, Agro-Man told Reynolds he was going to turn him into the feds. Motive? Money. To keep quiet. Gretchen glanced at her watch. Of course. Reynolds refused to pay and fired Joe instead. This was news to Reynolds. Joe's status? I think so. You're sure? Gretchen's eyes narrowed. Pretty sure. Andy, how was Joe getting paid? Um, I don't know exactly. Andy shrugged. Cash? Or a phony social, maybe? She heard her mother yelling in her head, Quiet, too much detail, and swallowed hard. Did the agro-man have any proof? No, but Reynolds was freaked out enough to fire Joe. 
Gretchen jotted a note, then looked up. And that's everything? All the facts? Yes. Andy's stomach clenched. So what can Joe do to get his job back? Would a lawyer help? Not really. Undocumented workers have no real employment rights in the U.S. Legally, they're ghosts. And using a fake social is a felony. Gretchen leaned back and gazed at Andy. You know, you really should report him. What? Andy croaked. You want to be a lawyer, so you need to protect the law. Joe's not your client, so you're not beholden to confidentiality. And you knowing about him and not turning him in could be interpreted as withholding evidence or aiding and abetting. Andy's shoulders caved. Seriously? Of course. Gretchen looked at her sideways. Lawyers are part of the justice system, too. You know this, Andy. Gretchen watched Andy's face turn chalk white and said, What's Joe's full name? I may know someone who can help. Um, uh, Sims. Like the game. Gretchen jotted the name. And he's Mexican? I think they have English heritage. Or maybe it's short for something. I'm not sure. It's probably not his real name. Gretchen raised an eyebrow, disappointed in Andy's naivete. Andy wrung the yellow card under the table and cleared her throat. Um, Miss Neves, there's something else I need to ask you about my working here. Yes? Gretchen leaned back, fingers tented. My, um, my parents said I can't work for free anymore. Is there any way I could get paid? Miss Neves gazed at Andy coolly, swiveled in her chair a bit, and said, Well, Andy, we're a small firm. We have to reserve our paid slots for matriculated law students. When you offered to file for free, I thought I'd made that clear. You did... It's just that things have changed for me. She jiggled her foot. What if I were to help out evenings and weekends? Still free, but for the experience. I'm not comfortable with you being here alone after hours. Andy unfolded the card. Gretchen sat forward in her chair. But we'll be sorry to see you go. Andy's eyes flicked down to the next question on the card, the one she didn't dare ask. Anything else? Gretchen glanced at her Cartier watch. My schedule is absolutely insane today. Andy shook her head and then rose to leave. The card fell from her lap. She breathed deep and blurted, If I need a college recommendation, would you possibly be willing to write me one, possibly? Gretchen rocked in her leather chair, smiling, that closed-lipped smile that makes you wonder whether someone's amused or nauseated. Slowly, she brushed a piece of lint from her glass-top desk and said, I don't think so, Andy. Please, Miss Neves, if I don't have a good recommendation, I'll never get a scholarship. Then college disappears for me. Well, you're quitting after such a short time. I mean, three weeks doesn't really give me much to recommend now, does it? 
Andy's hands fell to her sides like bags of wet sand. Right, of course not. No. She turned and shuffled to the door. Miss Neves opened a file and began reading again. Andy turned to face her. If things change for me, I'd like to come back. Would that be okay with you? We'll see. Gretchen glanced at a pink post-it on her desk. Oh, I almost forgot. She grabbed her Prada purse. Do me a favor? Andy leaped forward. Of course, anything. Drop this off for me, will you? She jangled a baggie containing a ring and a loose stone. Your mom works at the cafe next to K&H Turquoise, right? Andy looked at the bag, then at Gretchen's awful, nonchalant smile. She was completely unfazed by the fact that Andy's murdered future was bleeding out on her ivory carpet. Sure, Andy said, took the bag, and pushed through the heavy glass door. 1.7. Guilty. The dirty, sweet smell of burnt newspaper and pipe tobacco filled the air, stinging Andy's nose. So that's what's staining the sky, she muttered. Wildfire. And it was a big one. Trapped beneath the clouds, only a brisk wind or a rainstorm would clear the smoke out. Rain was most likely. That year, New Mexico had seen record-breaking rainfall, six times what they usually had. Andy had loved the rain and the wildflowers it brought, like everyone else, until the strange, hungry fungus arrived. In a matter of days, the bizarre disease had devoured the nuts, corn, asparagus, even the precious chili crop. A city littered with different flavors of superstition, Santa Fe's psychics, card readers, shaman, and Catholics all had their theories about the fungus. The Earth's chakras were out of whack, Mars was misaligned with Saturn, Mother Nature was finally taking her revenge for all the plastic in the landfill, the end of days had begun, and God had singled out the good farmers of New Mexico to rain down his fiery wrath. Interestingly, the one that seemed to stick was concocted by the three owners of K&H Turquoise, Shauna, Bree, and Vicky, also known as the Spinners. Besides peddling southwestern jewelry, art, and furniture, they spent their days crocheting fiction about everything and everyone in town. When Andy opened the door to their shop, they were spinning again. No, he had paid her to have the baby for him, said Shauna, standing behind a U of glass cases teeming with Native American jewelry. Twenty strands of silver haishi beads hung from her neck, chattering like children as she wiped down the glass. Like Michael Jackson did with his kids. But how could she give up her own baby? Apple-cheeked Bree looked up from her roost by the window. Lovely Andy Scoggin. Come in. What's with the long face? What's with the wildfire? Andy changed the subject quickly, hoping to gather some actual facts from whatever story they told. Wilson's burned their chili crop, Vicky said matter-of-factly. She sat behind the counter, sweating and looking ridiculous in Navajo velvets and two blonde Broomhilda braids. Are you serious? As a heart palpitation.
Shauna polished a coral and silver cuff on her sleeve. Bree gazed out the window and stroked her sable hair. They just got tired of fighting, I guess. So they intentionally destroyed their crops? No, sis, Shauna said. Just the sick plants to kill the disease before it spread to the rest. Andy felt the baggie in her pocket. Oh, Gretchen Neves at Hansen and Schmidt asked me to drop this off. Loose stone. She handed it over. Attorney Gretchen Neves? Hmm. Shauna slid on a pair of sterling silver reading glasses and examined the ring. I'm not sure about this prong, sis. We may have to replace it. I'll have Bob check. Andy plopped onto a spotted cowhide ottoman to wait. So why did the Wilsons burn their crop? Why didn't they just spray? Vicky looked up from her laptop. They did spray and pull and dug a break to keep the nasty stuff off the good plants. Nothing worked. And wouldn't you know it, the wind picked up at just the wrong time, almost like it was punishing them for burning its spawn. I get new. Shauna dropped the baggie in a yellow envelope and scribbled on the front. Now their farm's gone, along with the 2,000 acres around it. Sad times, sis. Do you think other farmers will burn their crops, too? Andy wondered if Rodriguez would set fire to his pistachio trees. I hope to Hades not, Shauna said. It's bad enough to lose the chili crop. It would be devastating to lose the rest. The Sozobra's going to be busting at the seams this year, that's for sure. For once, Andy agreed with Shauna. The burning of the Sosobra was a major event in Santa Fe, a catharsis for the town. Every year, residents would scribble their sorrows on bits of paper and stuff them into the head of a 50-foot-tall marionette. Then, on the first night of the Santa Fe Fiesta, they sentenced the puppet to death and burned him, along with the worries and pain of the past, supposedly giving everyone a fresh start for the harvest. It was quite a show, and thousands of people came from around the world to watch it. If they could just nail down the strain, Vicky said, where it came from, maybe they'd get the right cocktail of chemicals, too. I'll Google fungal pesticides. I know exactly where it comes from. Shauna tapped her copper-tipped nails on the counter. And chemicals won't do a thing. She turned and disappeared behind an Aztec print curtain that hid the back room. She's right, Bree said, gazing out the window. He brought it with him when he came. It won't leave until he does. Here we go, Andy thought, filling a cup from the chai tea dispenser. Who, she asked. The owner of that new mansion in Las Campanas, Bree answered. You know, the big black house. Owner's name is Adams, I heard. Vicky clicked away on her keyboard. He took ownership at the exact same time the Redmond saw the first bit of the nasty white on their buds. How can you know that? Andy asked, shaking her head. Vicky held up one finger. County records show closing dates on the house. Then a second finger. I talked to Stan Redmond at the Mart. 
The spinners manned a blanket every Saturday at the Palace of the Governor's Market, where they sold jewelry and gathered gossip. That's entirely circumstantial and hearsay. Inadmissible. Andy stretched to see what was taking Shauna so long, then mumbled into her cup. And a little crazy. Says here he paid cash for the place. But this many millions can't be right. The floors better be plated in 925 sterling for this price. See? I told you, Bree said, then let out a dreamy, aww, at the sight of a couple kissing across the street. Shauna emerged from the back room, waving a yellow claim check. Told us what? That Adams is hiding something criminal. No one pays cash for a house like that unless they don't want the IRS to know. Vicky said, and what kind of person wants to hide a multi-million dollar purchase from the government? Shauna flicked the claim check. Drug lord. Money launderer. Vicky held up a finger. Murderer, Bree whispered. The three women looked at each other with pursed lips and raised brows. Andy blinked slowly, waiting for the spinning to stop. But... He's not hiding if you found the records online in the county. Lila James said his aura is enormous and completely black, Shauna interrupted. Says she saw it coming from yards away. Is that even possible? An all-black aura, Vicky said. It is for a skinwalker, Shauna said. Bree glared wide-eyed at Shauna. Don't she whispered. Talking about the Navajo black magic witches known as skinwalkers was a surefire way to make a local jittery. If you even mentioned the word around a Pueblo or Navajo, they'd ask you to stop or leave the room. Bree was both. Andy knew more than she wanted to about the supposed skinwalkers. Her brother Luke had leveraged the creepy legend to scare his friends at bonfires and sleepovers for years. He'd tell how the skinwalkers used deep black magic and animal pelts to transform into bears, eagles, mountain lions. Then he'd explain how the more powerful ones, the masters, could actually possess people's bodies or perfectly mimic a voice to confuse their prey. And the creepiest part? In order to reach the highest levels of power... Skinwalkers had to kill someone in their own family, like some twisted cartel or street gang. Bree clutched the onyx bear fetish around her neck for comfort, then changed the subject. Demons have black auras, too. But they don't have physical bodies, Vicky said, and Melissa Snelling said she saw him at the Mercedes dealership, in the flesh. Um, I need to get going. Andy said. The disappointment of her meeting with Gretchen Neves had started to ache in her chest, and the crazy superstition talk wasn't helping. Is that the claim check? Shauna held out the paper. Are you okay, sis? Your aura's a little slushy. Want me to sage you? Andy leaped for the door. No, no thank you. Shauna had come at her before with those burning weeds, they only stank up her hair and made her gag. From the street, Andy checked her watch, then shook her head at the spinner's new record. 
less than ten minutes to weave some poor man into a money-laundering murderer and walking demon, someone named Adams.'